Well, good morning. It is so good to see you all this morning. My name is Pastor Jonathan, as I've already said, and whether you are a visitor or whether you are a member or whether you are a regular attender, I want you to know that you are welcome here this morning. I am so excited that you have joined us for worship this morning, and all of us as a church are so grateful that you have joined us to worship the risen Savior this morning. Now, today is a special day in the life of the church, as no doubt you know. It is Easter Sunday, our Resurrection Sunday. And last week, we began a two-week series entitled, Tell Me the Story of Jesus, where we are simply walking through the events of the Holy Week, breaking them down day by day and scene by scene, and discovering the story of Jesus during Holy Week. Now, obviously, we can't look at every single scene, or we would be here uh, for days, uh, but we will look at an overview of the story of Jesus today. Now, at Mission Dorado, almost every single Sunday, we practice verse-by-verse expository preaching, where we simply walk through the text of the day, look at what it says, and discover what it means, and then we ask the question at the end, how do we apply what we have read to our lives? However, today will be just a little bit different. Today, I want us to begin where we will finish, looking at Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 56. And then we will walk through Matthew chapter 26 through Matthew chapter 28. So today, looking at a large section of Scripture, we will follow it very closely, and we'll be covering a lot of grounds. And I'll stop and read at points, but for much of it, I will be summarizing what we see in Matthew 26 through 28. However, I would encourage you to have your Bibles open as we walk through these three chapters. And I'll reference where we're at every once in a while, but I would encourage you to have your Bibles open so that you can follow along and see the events of Holy Week as we follow them through the book of Matthew. That being said, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open them up and turn to the book of Matthew. I preach from the English Standard Version, so if you want to open that translation on your phone or your tablet, you are welcome to do so. If you didn't bring a Bible with you today, that is okay. We have some in the seats in front of you. You can find our text today on page 783. If you do not own a Bible at your home, uh, that Bible is your gift. You take it, you write your name on it, you take it home. That is our church's gift to you. Uh, With that being said, let's begin looking at our passage of Scripture for today in Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 56. It says this, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling out for Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, And he yielded up his spirit, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, They were filled with awe, and they said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Now, there are many peculiar things occurring in this passage. 
And I want us to look at those, and I want us to talk about those. But before we get to them, first, let's ask the question, how did Jesus get on the cross? How did we get to this point? Last week, we looked at Palm Sunday, and we saw Jesus making his way into Jerusalem for the Passover, and he was riding on a donkey as a huge crowd laid down their cloaks, and they laid down palm branches on the road to proclaim him as king for the day as he rode over them, and they were shouting, Hosanna, he saves, son of David, he is Messiah. And then the next day, on Monday, Jesus arrives at the temple to find a house of commerce and business, people buying and selling instead of a house of prayer. And Jesus enters into this scene, and in a righteous anger, we see him flipping the tables and the chairs of all who were buying and selling in the temple and driving them out. This is a dramatic scene. But even more dramatically was the response of those who remained in the temple. The wounded and the needy and the blind and the lame They came to him, and he healed them. See, they knew who this man was, and they came to him. And as the children saw what had occurred, they once again began to cry out, Hosanna, he saves, son of David, he was Messiah. See, the children knew who this man was. However, for those who ran the temple, they were angry. They were annoyed. Who did this man think that he was to run off those who were simply making a wage in the temple? to allow children to call him these names, to call him Hosanna, to say he is the Messiah. Who did he think he was? However, the lame walked and the blind saw and the children believed. And last week, by looking at Sunday and Monday and Tuesday of the Holy Week, we discovered that Jesus is sovereign over all things at all times so we can rest in him. And today, as we look at the final days of Holy Week, we will discover the answer to the question of who is this man? And we will discover that each of us have a responsibility to answer that question. But before we jump into the Thursday of Holy Week, there's a few developments that I need to make you aware of. See, after Jesus cleansed the temple, Jesus has spent all of Wednesday teaching. And by Wednesday, those who have seen what has happened in the temple and those who ran the temple were angry. And they gather in the palace of the high priest and they begin plotting to have a plan to kill Jesus and to have him arrested. And at the same time, one of the 12 disciples, Judas, has gone to these chief priests and he's made an arrangement to betray Jesus in an exchange for 30 pieces of silver. This is where our story of Jesus begins on Thursday of Holy Week. There is a plan to arrest and kill Jesus. When he is away from the crowds, And one of his own followers, Judas, is in on the plan. Act 1, it's Thursday. We'll begin looking in chapter 26, verses 17 through 35. Our story picks up on Thursday evening. Jesus has gathered for the traditional Passover meal with his disciples. And as they were eating, Jesus makes it known that he is aware that one will betray him. And as one would imagine, this shook the disciples They begin to ask, you can't possibly mean me, can you? Now, this meal was eaten with a common dish into which all who were present would frequently dip their hands into. And Jesus simply replies, it's the one who's eating with me. And Judas, having known what he has done, still follows with the cries of the other disciples. And he says, is it I, Rabbi? But Jesus, except to him, says, you have said so. 
And see, the paradox of the entire Passion Week is summarized in this one scene. Jesus knows what is occurring, and the events must happen as it is written. But this does not excuse the betrayal of Judas. Of Judas. Yet Jesus still chooses to allow these things to happen because he is, submitting, he is submitted to loving even those who sin against him. And as they were eating, Jesus deviated from what was routine and tradition as we see the implication of the first Lord's Supper. And he took the bread and he broke it. And he gave it to the disciples saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup and he said, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. See, Jesus uses his own blood as an imagery of blood poured out as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus is clearly saying here that he is the final Passover lamb and that his body will be broken and that his blood will be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. This echoes back to what we saw earlier in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, where we see Jesus say, The Son of Man came not to serve, but to, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. These words echo Isaiah 53, 4, the Old Testament prophecy that says, Surely he has bore our griefs and he has carried our sorrows. See, Jesus had clearly spoken. He would be betrayed and his blood would be poured out for the forgiveness of sins as a ransom for many. Then they sang a hymn and they headed to the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus went to pray. Then we see scene two, the prayer in the garden in chapter 26, verses 36 through 57. And Jesus and his disciples, they arrive at the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus goes off to pray. And our text says that Jesus became sorrowful and troubled. Our English words here for this translation of what this means in the Greek, do not do these words justice. What is being communicated here is that Jesus was deeply wrecked. He was deeply anguished and weighed down. The text even says that he was so weighed down that it's deathly. So Jesus goes off to pray and he falls prostrate. That means he falls flat on his face, praying deeply and emotionally. This is the only place in the Bible that we see uh, Jesus laying flat on his face, crying out and praying to God. See, we often remember in this scene that Jesus is fully God, and he is. But we often can forget that he was also fully human, which he was as well. And Jesus' full humanity is put on display here. He clearly knows the horror of this coming execution, and naturally and appropriately, he asks his father, is there any other way? However, as quickly as he asks if there's any other way, he also makes it plain and clear that he intends to fully comply and to submit to his father's desire. Jesus intends to be poured out for the payment of the sins of many. So Jesus has just wept prostrate and he's flat on his face and he's been sorrowful and so deeply disturbed that it was deathly. Yet look at verse 41, what happens when he returns to Peter, James, and John. They're asleep. Peter, who just five verses earlier has proclaimed, even if I must die with you, I will not deny with you, I will not deny you, cannot even stay awake for an hour while Jesus prays. And this doesn't just happen once, but it happens three times. And on the third time, Jesus returns and he says, Oh, surprise, you're asleep again. He says, Let's rise and we'll meet the one who has come to betray me. 
and I'll turn myself into the hands of sinners. And while Jesus has been away from the crowds and he's been praying, Judas has been running around and alerting those who wish to arrest Jesus away from the crowds as to not cause a large riot. And while Jesus does not seek his own death, neither will he flee from it. See, God is in control of all of these events, however tragic they may be. And Jesus is the Son of God, and he willingly submits to the will of his Father in full obedience for the sins of all people, as 1 John 2.2 says. However, look at Matthew 26, verses 47 through 56. While Jesus was still speaking, telling Peter, James, and John to wake up, Judas comes up with a great crowd of the great of the chief priests and the elders who were greatly armed, and he gives him a kiss. Judas did this so that at nighttime it would be easy to spot who Jesus was since maybe they possibly looked all alike, those from Galilee. And it would have been difficult at night to tell who he was. But Judas' kiss here is the height of insults. He gives him a kiss on the cheek, acting like he was giving him honor, even as he was betraying him. And notice, Judas doesn't address Jesus as Lord, but he simply says, Rabbi or teacher, a form of him distancing himself from Jesus. But also notice Jesus' reply. He says, friend. Think about this. This man whom is there to betray Jesus to have him arrested, who has followed him for years now and yet has chosen to betray him, Jesus calls him friend. Why? We know from John's gospel that not only has Jesus called him friend in this moment, but that Judas is also betraying Jesus with clean feet. Jesus knew what Judas would do. He knew the terrible suffering that was before him and that it would begin from the betrayal of Judas. Yet a short time before the Passover feet, Jesus washed all of his disciples' feet. And here Judas is standing with clean feet, betraying the Messiah, and yet Jesus still calls him friend. Jesus then submits to the will of the Father, even when those who were there with him tried to fight. And then in verses 57 through 75, we see a new scene where Jesus is taken to a makeshift court. And this was no traditional court setting. First of all, the Jews were not to hold trials at night or during festivals. And further, no sentence to death could be reached in one day. But this was no fair trial. This was those who had been angered and alarmed at their loss of control and power within the temple. These were those who we saw in chapter 21 that were indignant at the cleansing of the temple from all those who were buying and selling. And they quickly seek to corner Jesus into what they perceive as blasphemy or speaking untruths about God as they ask him to clearly tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Then we see in Mark's gospel, Jesus simply replies, I am. This is a striking testimony here. Even in a makeshift of courts with an agenda. The message is clear here. Jesus is the Christ. They know it, but they don't believe it. The disciples know it, but they don't understand it. And Jesus himself affirms it right here. See, a lot has happened on Thursday. But hear me, dear Christians. Sunday is coming. Act 2. It's Friday. We'll start off in chapter 27, looking at verses 1 through 31. We see Jesus is taken to Pilate. Friday morning, following the late night makeshift court, the Jewish authorities formally announced their verdict to sentence Jesus to death. 
However, the Jews didn't have the right to uh, capital punishment under Roman law as evidence in John chapter 18. So instead, they delivered Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor, to execute. Now Jesus faces Pilate. And Pilate's concern was if Jesus had broken Roman law or not. In other words, was he trying to overthrow Caesar's authority? So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? To which Jesus replies, You say so. Now Jesus continues to be accused and questioned by the chief priests and elders and Pilate while he is beaten and while he is scourged, and yet he says nothing. Isaiah 53, 7 is coming to mind here. He was pressed and he was afflicted, but he opened not his mouth. And this left the governor greatly amazed, and he was left unimpressed with the case against the Jews or against Jesus. But Pilate realized the popularity that Jesus has with the crowds and then the jealousy that has been created among the Jewish leaders. So in order for Pilate to rid himself of his problem, he decides to put the crowds against the Jewish leaders. It was the tradition at this time for the governor to release one prisoner at Passover who was chosen by the crowd. So Pilate's question to the crowd is, who do you want me to release? And he gave them two options. He says, there's Barabbas, who is the murderer, who is not well-liked, or there's Jesus, who you call the Christ. And Pilate was for sure that they would choose Jesus to be released. However, Pilate's plan did not work. The chief priest and the elders were able to persuade the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be released. And the crowd who just earlier in the week had declared Jesus as Hosanna, he saves, son of God, he is Messiah, now cries out, Let him be crucified. So Pilate, now seeing that he would not win against the crowd rather than face a riot, he delivers Jesus over to be crucified after he's already been scourged and whipped and beaten and flogged close to death. So Jesus is handed over to the governor's soldiers who continue to mock him. They spit on him and they beat him and they place a crown of thorns on his head seeking to humiliate him. Then they lead him to Golgotha to be crucified. Scene 2, the crucifixion. You can find this in chapter 27, verses 32 through 56. And there's been made much of over the years of the nature of the crucifixion. The torment and the agony and what Jesus' experience would have looked like. And we know that this was a Roman torture device. And we know that the nails would have been driven in the hands and the feet of Jesus as he hung, nailed on a cross, suffering towards death. However, in Matthew's gospel, we see very little described of Jesus' own experience on the cross. Rather, Matthew emphasizes how those who surrounded and passed by experienced the crucifixion, painting a picture for us of a universal rejection of Jesus as Lord up until the point of his death. Let's read together chapter 27, verses 32 through 44. I'll read out loud if you'll follow while I'll read. Chapter 27, verses 32. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. And they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But he tasted it, and he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down, and they kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And the two robbers who were crucified him, one on the right and one on the left, and those who passed by derided him, 
wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. We see Jesus, who was apparently incredibly weak from the flogging at this moment. Too weak to carry his own cross. So the soldiers find a man named Simon to help carry the cross beam. Then as they arrive at Golgotha, Jesus is offered a drink, and this drink is mixed with gall, which was probably a form of a painkiller and possibly a poison which was intended to ease and shorten Jesus' misery. But Jesus refused to decrease his suffering or to lose conscious of his surroundings by taking the drink. Then Jesus is crucified. He's nailed to the cross. His feet are placed together at the ankles and nailed into the cross. And his hands are placed at the wrist into each end of the cross beam and nailed into the cross. This was undoubtedly one of the most gruesome forms of torture and deaths humans have ever invented. It could involve suffering that would last for several days. And usually the final cause of death was suffocation as victims would become too weak to even lift their heads up to gasp for air. We see in Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, it says, They will divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. We see that coming true here. And above his head, where the crime was traditionally written, Jesus' crime was listed as simply the king of the Jews, which is a strong irony because it was the truth. And his lordship was put on display as his body was being broken and his blood was being poured out for all to be forgiven. Jesus was truly the suffering servant. He was truly the final Passover lamb. But this is just where our story begins to get interesting. Remember back where we began in Matthew chapter 27 and 45 through 46. And there were all these peculiar things that were occurring. Let's talk about those now. First, I want you to imagine the scene. There's a man who has taken Jerusalem by storm. First, he entered on a donkey where he was hailed and proclaimed as the Messiah, as Hosanna, as the one who has come to save. And surely this was talked about all throughout the city. Then this same man became furious at the commerce that was occurring in the temple while proclaiming that it was his house. And then he performed miracles that had everyone asking, who is this man? But quickly, the crowd that had cried out for him to save them now has begun to cry out for him to be crucified. I mean, did he really think he was the son of God? Was he really going to allow him to call him those things? I mean, it was fun for a moment to say that, but then when he actually believed it, I mean, who is this man? Who does he think he is? So here we are, this man who is healed, this man who has loved the unlovable, this man who has dined with sinners and proclaimed that his blood would be spilt for them on the cross with the crime against him being the king of the Jews is now nailed to the cross. However, then some peculiar things begin to occur. First, all across the land from noon to three o'clock, there was a darkness that appeared. I mean, surely this isn't normal. Why is it dark? I mean, it's supposed to be daytime. 
And maybe in the minds of those crucifying Jesus, there begins to be a little concern about of maybe he is coming to save himself. Maybe we've done something incredibly wrong. And then Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And we see him quoting Psalm 22.1, asking, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Historically, this is believed by many Christians to be the moment that Christ bore the sins of all humanity, spiritually separating him from his heavenly Father. Those around him are obviously already on edge from the darkness. And then they hear him crying out, and some were confused, and they thought that he was calling out for the prophet Elijah. Surely there was a hint of curiosity of what might occur next. As one even spoke and said, wait, let's let's see what's going to happen. We see from John's gospel that after this point, Jesus received a portion of sour wine in fulfillment of Psalm 69 and said, to telestai, or it is finished, and he gave up his spirit. See, the Son of God's life has been offered up on the cross. However, now some really peculiar things begin to occur. Not only is it dark in the middle of the day, but now the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom, meaning that no man tore it. It was this curtain which separated the court of the Jews and the court of the Gentiles, but now it has been torn in a way that no man could take credit for. Surely this one that had just offered up his life for the forgiveness of all sins had offered it up for the forgiveness of all. Jew and Gentile. Then the earth begins to quake. And not like a small ones we have here, but one that was large enough to split rocks. And this is where it gets really peculiar. The tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And notice these are not bones, but these are risen bodies that emerge. And not only do they emerge and are raised, but then these bodies go into Jerusalem and they begin to appear to many. You see what I mean by peculiar things occurring? I mean, that's a lot. And I imagine the Roman soldiers, the Roman centurions. I, begin, I imagine that this day began like a normal day. I'm not trying to downplay the severity of the crucifixion or the gruesomeness of it. But history tells us that crucifixions were quite common. But this day must have been different for the Roman centurion. First, they were calling this man the king of the Jews. And he had declared that he was the son of God. And he was being mocked for it. But... There were some who believed in him. There were some who had followed him. And there may have been this little thought in the back of the mind of the centurion, what if this is true? Then the sky gets dark in the middle of the day for three hours. And this doesn't happen very often. And I can see the Roman centurion begin thinking, well, that's odd. But then dismissing it quickly as a freak storm. However, then the curtain of the temple is torn from top to bottom. And at this point, the Roman centurion may have begun to think, well, this is really eerie. What if he is the son of God? However, he quickly dismisses the thought by saying, well, it may have been the wind or a lightning strike. I mean, we're in the middle of a freak storm where it's dark. But then the earth begins to quake. And then the rocks are split in half. And then the news begins to make its way through the crowd that those who had passed away, those who had fallen asleep earlier, were now appearing to many in the town. Maybe it was even someone that the centurion had known. Or maybe they appeared to people that he knew and that he trusted to not tell a lie. Finally, this all becomes too much for the centurion to handle. It becomes too much for him to ignore. And he's filled with awe and he declares, truly, this was the Son of God. It's this crucifixion 
The blood of Jesus Christ that declares loudly, see from his head, his hands, his feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Truly, this is the Son of God. Then we see in verse 57, Jesus' body is wrapped in clean linens, and he's laid in Joseph's tomb, which has been cut into the rock, and a great stone is rolled in front of the entrance. And hear me, dear brothers and sisters, it is Friday, but Sunday is coming. Act 3, it's Saturday. We see this in chapter 27, verse 62. The next day, Jesus' body, after it was prepared, the Jewish officials and Pilate gather up and they remembered these words that after three days, he said, I will rise again. So they begin to make plans to secure the temple or to, to secure the burial site. And see, while the Son of God had just offered up his life as a ransom for many, these religious officials were still concerned about losing power. So they wanted to protect themselves from rumors that Jesus may have risen from the dead. So they send soldiers to stand guard and to make sure that the tomb is secure so that there is no fraud. However, these religious elite who have studied the scriptures so much, they surely don't know much about the power of God. See, there ain't no grave and there ain't no stone and there ain't no guard that's going to keep Sunday from coming. Oh, it's Saturday dear Christian, and Sunday is coming. Let's look at the final act on Sunday. Chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. Sunday is finally here. It's the day that everything else has been leading up to. Jesus has come fully God and fully man. He's lived a perfect sinless life. He's offered up his life on the cross as a ransom for many, as a payment for all of our sins. But the story isn't complete without Sunday. Let's look at the end of this amazing story by reading Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. It says, Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled, and they became like dead men. But then the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. But hear this, church, he is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. <laughs> and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. And Jesus said, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. See, Sunday has come. And the Marys are on their way to the tomb with some fragrant spices to anoint him. 
In just a few verses earlier in Matthew chapter 27, verse 55, we saw that these women were there and they were witnesses of the crucifixion. They had seen Jesus die with their own eyes. However, the next day when they arrive at the tomb, we're told that there was a great earthquake and the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came up and rolled the stone back and sat on it. Luke's gospel tells us that the angel said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. So these ladies run quickly to go and tell the disciples what has happened. And surely their minds are racing. Surely they're replaying in their head what has just occurred and they're rehearsing how they're going to share this with the disciples. Maybe they're even asking the question, what if they don't believe us? Or what if they think they've lost their minds? Or or what's going on? And then suddenly, as they are busy with their thoughts and they're running to see the disciples, standing before them is the risen and the reigning Savior, Jesus Christ. And I love this point. He simply says, greetings. I mean, can you imagine the shock? Imagine the emotions. Imagine the awe. Here standing before them is a man that they've just seen gruesomely beat and crucified and buried. And then they've gone to the tomb and the stone is rolled back even when it was heavily guarded. And now his body is gone. And now he's standing before them and he says, greetings. I mean, just the sight of this must have brought them disbelief and awe and then worship as they fall at his feet and they worship him. They must have even forgot where they were going or what they were doing. All they knew is the risen and the reigning Savior was standing before them and they were going to worship him. And Jesus tells them, don't be afraid, but continue on with your assignment of going to tell my brothers to meet me in Galilee. What an amazing testimony. Jesus appears to the least of these in this society. And then he calls those who have abandoned him and denied him his brothers. What a display of love is this. And Jesus continues and he appears to the 11 disciples and tells them, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he instructs them and to go and do what we call the Great Commission, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, saying, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, this is the story of Jesus. Sunday has come. Jesus was beaten. His body was broken. His blood was poured out. He was killed and he was placed in a tomb. Yet on Sunday, the tomb is empty. The grave couldn't hold him. And the Messiah is risen and he's seated at the right hand of God, his father. And one day he's returning to bring those who believe in him home with him. Oh, Christian, can we celebrate that today? It's Sunday and the resurrection has changed everything. The story of Jesus is powerful, and it is true, and it is life-changing. But you may be asking today, yes, this is Easter, and yes, this is Resurrection Sunday, but what does the resurrection mean for me? Well, first, the resurrection of Jesus Christ means 
that Jesus justifies sinners before God. What in the world does that mean? Justification is a big word that simply means to be put right with. Well, why do we need to be made right? Well, hear me when I tell you this. There is a God, and he is holy. And he created everything that we can see, and we can touch, and we can feel, including you. And God is holy. That means he can't do anything wrong, and he's set apart, nor can he be with anything that has ever been done wrong. He's unlike anyone or anything else. He's never done anything wrong, nor can he be associated with anything that is wrong. Yet you see all of us in here, myself included, all of us, all of humanity, we've all sinned. We've all done something wrong. We've all lied or we've all stolen or we've all cheated. We've done something against God's law. And this creates a problem because God is holy and cannot be associated with sin. But yet we are sinners. Therefore, as sinful humans, we are separated in this life and the next from the God who created us and the God who loves us. And this is bad news. Oh, but let me tell you the good news that we've seen today. God loves you more than you could ever understand or imagine. And he made a way that you can be forgiven of your sins and you can be in heaven with him for all of eternity. See, he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, that we've been talking about to earth as a baby. And Jesus was fully God and he was fully man. And I don't fully understand it, but I fully believe it. And he lived a perfect sinless life here on earth. But yet he went to a cross like we've just seen and he died for your sins. And then three days later, he defeated sin and death when he rose from the grave. And his resurrection means that through your belief in him, through your confession that he is Lord and turning from your sin and to him, you can be made just or you can be made right in God's eyes. That means that when God sees you, he no longer sees your sinfulness, what you've done wrong, but yet he sees the righteousness and the purity and the blood of Jesus Christ that covers your sin. See, we quite literally get what we don't deserve. Forgiveness. Because Jesus got what he did not deserve on the cross. And in this way, the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you confess him as Lord and turn from your sins, that you are justified and made right before God. That in and of itself is huge. But what else does the resurrection mean for you? The resurrection of Jesus Christ also means that you must decide who this man is. The great author C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, said that humanity has three options for deciding who Jesus is. One, he's a liar. Two, he's a lunatic. Or three, he's Lord. Well, is he a liar? Why would we say that Jesus is a liar? Think for a moment of some of the claims that Jesus made about himself. In John 8, 58, Jesus said, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Abraham was 1,800 years before Jesus spoke those words. He was saying that he was alive 1,800 years before that moment. John chapter 10, verse 33, Jesus said, I am the Father, our one. Matthew 21, Jesus spoke of the temple as my father's house. John 14, 6, Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Many in our world will tell you that Jesus was just a good man. That he was simply a moral teacher who treated others kindly. No. Jesus said he was the son of God. And he said that he and the father are one. Jesus said that no one came to God except through him. These are bold claims for someone to make. So was Jesus a liar? Another option is he a lunatic. Come on. There we go. (laughs) Come on. Another one. Another option is he a lunatic. And if that he was not lying, then Jesus really believed these things that he was saying. He really believed that he was the only way to heaven. He really believed that he had existed before Abraham was 1800 years earlier. What kind of person could believe these things unless they were a lunatic? And we know that Jesus believed these things because he endured suffering and he endured the cross. Jesus really believed what he was saying. So was Jesus a lunatic? No, but if so, could not, he could not have been a good moral teacher. But he would have been a madman that was leading others to suffer and to die and follow him. And the last option that we have is to believe about Jesus is that Jesus is Lord is that he's not lying and that he really believed these things that he was saying because they were and they are true. And if this is the case, and I believe it is, and I believe that the resurrection gives evidence that it is, and I believe that the testimony of my life and others who follow Jesus give evidence that it is, then we must declare Jesus as Lord. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We're told here that if we simply believe in our hearts in the resurrection, that we will be saved. See, this is the point where the message of Christianity is radically different from every other religion. See, Scripture doesn't give us a list of things to do or not do or boxes to check off or rituals to follow. There's only truth to be believed and confessed. However, the other part of Romans 10, 9 also tells us that we must confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. This is huge. We must turn from our sins and we must believe in him and confess the lordship of Jesus Christ. Hear me when I say this. Scripture tells us that even the devil believes in God. Imagine for just a moment that I could have a conversation with the devil and he would be honest with me. If I could ask the devil and he would be honest with me, Do you believe that the Bible is the word of God? Then he'd say yes. If I could ask him, do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? The devil would reply yes. If I were to ask the devil and he would be honest with me, do you believe Jesus died on the cross and rose again? Then he'd say yes. And if I were to ask him, do you believe that Jesus is the only way to be saved? If he was being honest, he would say yes. And hear this, even if I would ask him, would you commit to live a moral life and come to church and get involved in leadership? He might even say yes. But the crucial question is this. Will you repent of your sin and surrender your life to Jesus as Lord? And the devil would clearly answer, absolutely not. Believe in Jesus, yes, but we must also declare that Jesus is the Lord of our life, that he has complete control over our life because of what he did on the cross. Isn't he worthy? Have you done this today? God is offering you a 
a free gift of salvation. He's offering you the opportunity to declare him as Lord. It's nothing that you could earn. It's nothing that you could achieve. But he sent his only son to die on a cross for you. And then he rose three days later like we have seen today, displaying his authority over sin and death. And today he is offering you forgiveness. He's offering you heaven to be in eternity with God forever. Nothing that you could earn, nothing that you could do. Only you professing and proclaiming, Jesus is Lord. Would you do this today? Would you accept this free gift of salvation? However, I need to let you know this as well. This free gift of salvation, this forgiveness from Jesus Christ, this being made back in right relationship with Jesus Christ has an expiration date. It's when we take our last breath here on this earth. Do you know when that date is? I do not. You do not. None of us know. Would you believe? Would you repent? And would you confess him as Lord while you have breath today? Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he Lord? You must decide today. The story of Jesus makes it clear that Jesus is Lord. But who do you say he is today? Our big idea for today is this. Jesus' resurrection demands that we declare him as Lord. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Believer in this room, oh, it's so good to remember the resurrection. It's so good to remember how good our Lord is. And maybe today you need to come and you need to bow at the feet of your Savior and Lord using this altar. Maybe you need to confess your sin and you need to give him praise and adoration. Today, let's fall at the feet of our Savior and worship him like we saw the Marys do. Let's give him thanks. Maybe you're here today and you've never experienced God's forgiveness or called on him for salvation. If not, today is the day of salvation. In a moment when we sing a song, that's the moment that I can help you come down, that you can come down front and I can help you walk through placing your hope and your faith in Jesus Christ. Don't delay. Don't wait. Call on Jesus for forgiveness today. We're not promised tomorrow. Whatever it is that you need to do in a moment when I pray and we sing, let's do business with the Lord today. Church, I love you so much. Let's pray.